I'm reading the whole of chapter 27, Isaiah's Apocalypse. Is that right? Good. So I'm going to start at verse 1. The deliverance of Israel. In that day, the Lord will perish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword. Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. In that day, sing about a beautiful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry if only there were briars and thorns comforting me. I will march against them in battle. I will set them all on fire. Or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Has the Lord struck her as he struck down those who struck her? Has he, she been killed by those who killed or who killed her? By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With his fierce blast, he drives her out as on the day of the east wind blows. By this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full footage of the removal of his sin. When he makes an altar stones, makes all the altar stones be like chalk stones crushed to pieces, as asweth poles or incense altars will be left standing. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement, forsaken like the desert. There the calves graze, there they lie down. They strip its branches bare. When its twigs are dry, they are broken off, and women come and make fires with them. For this is a people without understanding, so their maker has no compassion on them, and their creator shows them no favours. In that day the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates, to the wadi of Egypt. And you, O Israelites, will be gathered up, those who are perishing. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Those who are perishing in Assyria and those who are exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we look into it this evening, we just pray that your Holy Spirit will light it up to light our lives up in service of you. Amen. When I, Anne found out she was reading, 
and we sat at the breakfast table and she said, so what am I reading? And I said, Isaiah chapter 27, and she said, oh, have you got to preach out of that? <laughs> and I said, yes, but I have help. We're looking this evening at these four chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, which are like a little capsule in the middle of the prophecy. And it's the Isaiah Apocalypse is the title which uh, I've been given, which Alec Mateer in his very, very erudite and, and wonderful book on devotional translation of Isaiah. This is the section that he calls the Isaiah Apocalypse. And I suppose, firstly, I should define the word apocalypse, which forms the basis of this reading and of the talk this evening. The word apocalypse actually means revelation. Um, and in my Greek New Testament, the last book of the New Testament in Greek is called Apocalypsis Ioannou, the Apocalypse of John. We call it Revelation. The Greeks call it the Apocalypse of John. And the word apocalypse conveys an unveiling or an unfolding of things not previously known. Things that in some sense are not known apart from the unveiling. We, we realize this when we recognize that apocalyptic literature details the writer's visions or proclamations of the end times. And they're revealed to them in visions, revealed to them by an angel, or by another heavenly mission, messenger, or even by the Lord himself. In the Old Testament, we can see apocalyptic writing in the books of Joel, Zechariah, and Daniel, as well as this section in the book of Isaiah, and there's others as well, probably. In the New Testament, we find it in Matthew chapter 24, and Mark chapter 13, words spoken by Jesus himself about the end times. And then in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, and of course, the book of Revelation. Now, in addition to these, there are many, many other examples of apocalyptic literature which have not been included in the Bible for one reason or another. But that's for another time, perhaps. Before I start, I should perhaps say that I'm in no way an expert on eschatology, which is the theology of the end times, or indeed on apocalyptic literature and theology. Indeed, it's quite difficult to find two theologians who would agree. So what, help, what, uh, what hope is there for me? What I'll be sharing this evening are some thoughts and observations that I've come up with as I've read these parts of scripture and read one or two other Christian writers. What I hope to leave us with this evening is a sense of the joy and peace that comes from knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, knowing that our Father is still in control 
of what at times seems to be a world of chaos. This world truly is his. He really is working his purposes out and his plans will ultimately be fulfilled. Now, I'd probably need a whole series of sermons to look deeply at these four chapters of Isaiah. In fact, when I first mentioned it to Sarah, I said I was going to be speaking out of chapter 25. And then this week, as I was preparing, I changed my mind and moved to 27. That's where I want to center our thoughts this evening. Nevertheless, it's worth spending just a few moments looking at these other chapters, 24 to 526, particularly as in them we perhaps see echoes of world events today, prophetic words which resonate through the ages. This apocalyptic section begins in chapter 24 with the destruction of the world order. Leadership has become corrupt and turned away from the ways of the Lord. And as Alec Matias says in that excellent devotional translation of Isaiah, from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the United Nations, mankind has been striving after a world that is safe, organized, neat, unified, fortified against threat. And we ain't got there yet, have we? We all know that sin is all-pervasive, that we have an enemy who loves to sow discord and disharmony, and even our best efforts for peace can suddenly become explosive. Praise God, as we shall see, that he doesn't leave us there in a whole heap of trouble. That's chapter 24, the destruction of the world order. Chapter 25 begins with a song of praise to the Lord who delivers, to the one whose plans were established long, long ago. Plans, as I've said already, will, which will one day come to full fruition. And there we see one day, figuratively speaking, the faithful will all be gathered to the Lord's banquet set out for us on Mount Zion. This is reflected later in the apocalyptic writing of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 9, where John hears the angel say this, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. This chapter, 25, contains some wonderful words and promises from the Lord, which we today can hold on to, perhaps Underline them in your Bible as I've done. For instance, verse 8. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. And the disgrace there doesn't mean we're in disgrace. It refers to the reproach that God's people receive from those outside the kingdom particularly when we fall from the Lord's standards, which they expect us to keep. It's similar to what Matt was saying about the word disdain this morning. Secondly, there's verse 9. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. 
We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There's no one else we can trust completely. We've so much to praise the Lord for. He's always with us, always there for us, however hard times may seem. Moving on from chapter 25 is 26, another wonderful song of praise that will one day be sung in the land of Judah when the Lord's eternal plan is fulfilled. The Lord's people are secure in the peace that only comes from the Prince of Peace. And so they can sing the words we find in verses 3 and 4. You will keep him in perfect peace, the one whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Some of the songs we sing speak about rock that will never be shaken. This is a wonderful promise for all who trust in the Lord. So 26, a song of praise. And then we move on to 27. And I'm not going to look through this verse by verse. Bits of it are fairly difficult, as quite a lot of Isaiah is. But in this part of the apocalypse of Isaiah, we read of the final gathering of the Lord's people, the deliverance of those who've placed their trust in God and now, of course, in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And in this chapter, there are four in that day phrases, which I'd like to look at over the next few minutes. And that's where I sort of centered our thoughts. The chapter begins with the words, in that day. And verse 1 speaks of the final victory over all that is evil. In that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his great, fierce, powerful sword, Leviathan, the monster. And the word Leviathan here is used as a symbol of the nations that have turned away from God to pursue their own ends and to persecute the Lord's people. They will be destroyed. As I implied earlier, we may look at world events and wonder where God is in all that's going on. But make no mistake, he is the Lord and he will fulfill all of his promises. Jesus is triumphant. He's broken the chains of evil. He's alive and the victory is his. The second in that day is in verse 2 where we read, In that day sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it so that no one may harm it. Here the Lord's people are urged to sing a song of praise for the changes that the Lord will bring about. Instead of waste places, there will be a fruitful vineyard. Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom. And the whole world will be filled with the fruit of God's blessing. 
This is the new earth which we see spoken about in Revelation chapter 21, where we read these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't it wonderful the way these revelations reflect each other? No more tears. And we've read that already in Isaiah. And John gets the same message. When God brings about the change, it's going to be a big change. But it's going to be an amazing one. The third in that day, in this chapter, is in verse 12. We've jumped over a bit, but it's, it's really the packing of the change that God's going to bring about. So we jump on to verse 12. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, Israel, will be gathered up one by one. This, in that day, speaks of the Lord who is the harvester, who's gathering all his people, wherever they are, gathering to them together. And although on the surface of it, this might look as if it's limited to a small portion of the Middle East, the Euphrates, to the Wadi of Egypt. It's pictorially representing the ideal promised land, the ideal boundaries of God's promised land. And of course, through Jesus, those boundaries are limited. The promised land is limitless. All are welcome. We're, through Jesus, co-heirs of the promises of God. And although I've got little idea of the scope of that, it fills me with eager anticipation. And then finally, we come to the in that day, in verse 13. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Those who are perishing in Assyria, those who are exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. This morning we sang, when Jesus comes with trumpet sound. One of my favorite, favorite new songs. And this tells us that in that day, the great trumpet is going to sound and all God's people will be gathered in together. For the Jews, these words would be a reminder of the trumpet sounding on the Day of Atonement in the year of Jubilee. For the Christian, this perhaps reminds us 
of the seven trumpets that are sounded in chapters 8 to 11 of the Apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation. We actually looked at that last year, I think, Mike. I think it was last year. And we then, in there, the seven trumpets. This is speaking about the seventh trumpet. In verse 15 to 17 of that chapter 11 in Revelation, we read, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. When I read that, I thought, the God who was and is, we always say, and is to come, don't we? But in this, of course, he's already come. He's the God who is, the God who was. He's taken his great power, and he's begun to reign. In conclusion, I would say, of course, that we might not fully understand the apocalyptic literature, whether it's in the revelations given to the Old Testament prophets, or to John when he was on the island of Patmos, to Jesus as he went around teaching. I do believe that we can understand enough to rejoice in the promises of God which we can be absolutely certain of. I've got three of them. We can be absolutely certain that Jesus did leave his home in heaven and come and live among us, revealing the love of God his Father and then giving himself for us. We can be absolutely certain that the cross of Christ is the symbol of victory, bringing us new life through his broken blood, broken body, and forgiveness of sins through his shed blood. And, apocalyptically, we can be absolutely certain of eternal life with him when he returns or when he takes us to be with him. As Sarah quoted, as I quoted earlier, from chapter 25, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen. Thank you.